0: This is hard, difficult stuff. And to be quite honest, you know, it's so chilling and so grim as we look at this passage that very few people have ever preached on it. In fact, I would not be surprised if very few of you tonight have ever heard a sermon on Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. If you were here last week... George preached on the stoning of Stephen, and you know that he preached on Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, and it just seems to make sense that tonight we would be talking about what? Acts chapter 8, or maybe Acts chapter 9, but we actually went backwards to Acts chapter 5. Why did we do that? Well, we did that because actually I was very convicted about skipping this passage. Because in the original plan for the semester, I actually wanted to skip over Acts chapter 5 because it was difficult and harsh and hard and I didn't want to have to deal with it. But after thinking about it, I started thinking, is that really what I want us to be about? Friends, I don't want us to be a ministry that skips over the hard things in the Bible. That skips over the hard topics. I don't want you to be a person that skips over the hard topics. I don't want us to be a ministry that skips over the hard passages like Acts chapter 5. And so I thought that we would deal with that tonight. Because I think it teaches us several important things, and here are just a few things that I think it actually sheds light on for us. And we'll get into the passage, but this passage is, I think, important for us to look at because... One thing it shows us is that the early church was pretty messy. When we're studying the book of Acts, if you've been here, you know that, man, some big things are happening. 3,000 people are saved in one day. They've got this rich, deep community. Miracles are being performed by the apostles and huge things are happening. And then we have this inserted and it's a little bit of a relief to me because it reminds me that I know and I feel the messiness of the church today but Luke says well it was pretty messy back then too and another thing I think this is significant about this passage is it shows us that Luke had some credibility he was a credible historian He was an authentic historian. I mean, Luke, you think about it, he could have very easily just skipped over this passage. He didn't have to write Acts chapter 5 and people falling out and being struck down. He could have hidden that, but he didn't because he wants to be real and authentic. It actually gives him credibility because he doesn't brush aside the hard, difficult, even horrific experiences in the early church. I remember when I was a kid growing up, and maybe you loved this too, but I loved magic tricks. I loved illusionists. I loved David Copperfield and people like that. And uh, one of the highlights of my growing up was actually going to a David Copperfield show. And I'll never forget it. He did all these illusions and I was just amazed and wowed at what he was doing. So much so that maybe um, I went home and I ordered a book on how to do some of these things and how to do magic tricks. Maybe you've had a book or read a book like that. And as you start to kind of study this and get into kind of what's going on, one of the things you realize is how all of this works. And one of their tactics is to get you so into the details... Of the act to get you wrapped up in the minute minuscule details that are happening on the stage that you actually miss where the real action is. You actually miss what is actually happening. Well that's such a great picture of what happens when we come to the Bible. Oftentimes when we come to hard difficult passages in the Bible, what we, end up do, what we end up doing is get, getting caught up in the details, in uh, the messiness of it, in the things that we don't like the problem, and in doing so, we miss the point that the author is actually trying to make. That's exactly what we are in danger of falling into tonight. When we hear this story in the chilling details... We can get so wrapped up into those things that we actually miss exactly what Luke is trying to teach us tonight through Acts chapter 5. And so here's my hope. I actually got this outline. It's not from me. It's from Leo Schuster. He's a pastor in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church. And he has this outline that I don't think can be improved upon, quite frankly, because it's very clear. But my hope is, is that tonight we would deal with the problems of the passage and that as we deal with the problems, that it would actually, we would push through them to get to the point of the passage and then we would end by looking tonight at the powers of the passage. So that's the three points. We're going to look at the problem of the passage, the point of the passage, and finish with the powers in the story. Let me pray before we start. Father, would you come and help us? We need your help, so come through your Spirit and teach us. Help us to deal with this passage faithfully, but also apply uh, this passage to our hearts and help us to learn and to be changed. Uh, Rebuke us, convict us, change us, and teach us in all righteousness and most importantly show us the good news of the gospel show us jesus it's in his name we pray amen number 1 we see the problem of, of the story i think the main problem that people have had over the years with this story it's actually pretty obvious isn't it the main problem that people have is that it is so harsh It is so grim, it is so chilling. Two people are executed on the spot by divine judgment. I don't know about you, but it doesn't get any more frightening or sobering than this passage. Look at verses 5 and 11. Notice any time words are repeated in a particular passage, the author is screaming at us. And trying to show us something. And we see here in verses 5 and 11, the author is emphasizing the point that this community was overtaken by fear. They were seized by fear. They were paralyzed by fear. And so we need to ask, what in the world is going on in this passage? Well, there's a few observations that I want us to... To look at and I hope that they will at least get us on the way of working through the problems that you might have with this particular passage and the first observation I want to make is that remember what book we are studying we're studying the book of Acts and when you study the Bible not every book of the Bible is interpreted the exact same So you've got to take things into account. For example, when we study the book of Acts, one of the things we need to take into account is where we are in history. Where we are as we study this book in redemptive history. And one of the things we know about the book of Acts is that it was a season and a time of tremendous and massive transition in the life of Christianity and in the life of the church. Why do I tell you that? Well, I tell you that because what we see here is highly exceptional. What we see here is not normal. It's not ordinary. I mean, read the entire New Testament and you don't see things like this happening. In fact, read the entire Bible and you will see that it's not normative, what we see in Acts chapter 5. And so that's significant. Because what that means, and it means that we must take that into account as we look at Acts chapter 5 in Ananias and Sapphira. Related to that is this. Remember where the church is in in its life. It's in the infant stage, isn't it? It's just beginning. And so what we see is that it is very young, and if something were to get off track, This early on in the life of the church, it could have been devastating for the long-term impact of Christianity in the world. And so God knew that things had to be corrected early so that the witness of Christianity in the world would not be contaminated. But we also, as we kind of deal with some of these problems, I think another thing that's interesting is this passage actually debunks the idea that The God of the Old Testament, we often hear this, and maybe you've heard this. I grew up thinking this way. But the God of the Old Testament is a God of justice. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love. And what we see is that actually debunks that idea. Because what this teaches us is that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And as we study... The Bible, one of the things we see is that the way God is portrayed throughout the entire Bible, there's a way more continuity than there is discontinuity. And actually, it makes sense if you look at it and think about it logically. The only way you and I can ever really experience and understand and grasp the love of God is for us to first understand the justice of God. We need a God that is both loving, but who is also just. Think about it. Friends, if God is not a God of justice, who are we to say what justice really is? If God is not a God of justice, then what in the world do we do with the gross injustices that we see in the world around us? Christianity, it's often mistakenly said that, uh, and it's, it's not true, but oftentimes people think that Christianity teaches that all the wrongs this side of heaven will be made right. That is not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that the wrongs will finally be made right, all of them once and for all, when Jesus returns and makes them right and ushers in the final judgment. What Christianity teaches is right now, oftentimes, what we see are signs of wrongs being made right. And they happen all around us. And that's what we see in this passage. We see signs, and yes, I grant, it, I grant to you it is a very harsh sign, but we see signs of God making things, making wrongs right in the world. And we see that happening all around us all the time. And what it does for us... We don't see it fully, but what it does for us is it points us forward to the day of ultimate judgment when God will make everything right and fix everything and come down and justice will be served once and for all. And I want to suggest that you feel that, don't you? There's a sense in which all of us feel that, and normally we feel that and we take it and it, it comes out when we go to use extreme examples such as this. What do you do with Sandy Hook Elementary? What do you do with that? With someone who I will not mention his name, walks into a school and kills innocent young children and then turns the gun on himself. How do you deal with that if God is not a God of justice who will come back at some time in the future and make all things right, including that. You see, there's no way that we can possibly have an objective basis for judgment unless God is a God of justice. Maybe some of those things will help you kind of push through the problems that maybe you experience in this story, because that's the hope, is that we wouldn't get bogged down in the problems, but we would push through them To the point of the story, and that brings me to point number two, which is the point of the story. And to get to the point of the story, one of the things that we must understand is what we must get to the bottom of what they are actually being judged for. If you look at the beginning of the story... There is this man called Barnabas, and he's given this nickname of the son of encouragement. Barnabas is thought of very highly. He's very popular. People like him. He's generous. He's godly. If you look throughout the book of Acts, when Luke writes about him, he writes about him very fondly, he holds him in high regard. And Ananias and Sapphira, notice the contrast the writer is making. Ananias and Sapphira are on the side, and they're watching this, and it seems like Barnabas is getting lots of attention. And they're saying, I want to be like that. I want the attention. I want the recognition. I want people to think I'm great too. And so what do they do? Well, they say, we're going to sell the field, and we're going to give every single bit of it to the church. Well, it comes time and they actually sell the land and they actually make tons more than they thought they would make and they see dollar signs and that's all they can see. And so then they have a decision to make and they decide to say, well, what difference does it really make? We'll keep some for ourselves, but we'll tell everyone that we gave it all. Don't make the mistake in thinking that they are being judged here because they kept the money. Friends, they're not being judged because they kept the money. How do we know? Look at verse 4. Peter's quick to mention to Ananias that the money was his to do with as he pleased. So the point is this passage is not about greed, this passage is not about money, it's not about generosity. You know what it's about? It's about pretending. It's about being a spiritual poser. It's about pretending to be generous. It's about pretending to be more generous than you actually are so that you might gain the reputation of being generous. The thing that's driving Acts chapter 5 is this desire to look good in front of other people. So, you want to know the point of Acts chapter 5? Here it is in three words God hates hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? Literally, hypocrisy means play acting. It's when you become an actor or an actress in life rather than on the stage. It's when we start to pretend and fake it just because people are watching us. But think about this you're probably sitting there saying, okay, but I mean, come on, it's still a little harsh. Is it really that big a deal? I mean, they just kind of shaded the truth a little bit and exaggerated. Did they really deserve this? Is it really that big a deal? Yes. It's really that big a deal. Why? Because when you look at the anatomy of hypocrisy, what we learn is that there is nothing that could have been more damaging to the early church than hypocrisy. G.K. Chesterton, he's a philosopher, and he has this very sobering quote, the greatest argument against Christianity is the lives of Christians. The greatest argument against Christianity is the lives of Christians. And so judgment had to come. God brought this judgment on them. And it was so harsh because there is nothing that was more damaging to the early church than spiritual pretense. And when we think about hypocrisy, oftentimes, uh, and rightly so, we tend to just simply think of hypocrisy kind of from those that are on the outside looking in. For example, those outside a community uh, or a church, and they look into a community or a ministry and they say, there's no way I'm going to that church. Or there's no way I'm going to this campus ministry or that campus ministry. Why? You've heard it. Because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. And you know what? It's true. That's true. But you know what? It's so much deeper than that. Because not only do I want us to see, yes, that's true, that we see hypocrisy in people from the outside looking in, but hypocrisy, it's important to see what it does inside the church. Have you ever thought about it that way? Think about hypocrisy and what it does inside a community of people. When hypocrisy makes its way and starts to weave its way into a community, what happens? You can't trust any each other anymore. Why? Well, because everybody's wearing a mask. Because everybody suddenly is pretending and everyone looks like they're having it all together. And suddenly, your community becomes unsafe for people to struggle and to admit that they need Jesus. It becomes a place where no repentance and no honesty and no genuine, genuine, genuineness is experienced in community. You know, one of the reasons why the early church was able to plow through the Roman Empire the way it did in less than 300 years is because it was a place where people were free to be themselves. It was a place where people were free to come and take off their mask and be at ease and let their guard down. People ask me... What do you want RUF to be at Ole Miss? Jason, what do you want the vision to be? Here's one of them. Friends, I want more than anything for this to be a place on this campus where people can come outside these walls, and when they walk through those doors, they don't have to pretend. They can actually be loved for who they are. That's what I want. That's what I pray. But we've got to start being honest, don't we? Friends, you and I share in Ananias' sin. When we make ourselves out to be more spiritual than we really are, You and I share in Ananias' sin and we become pretenders and posers when we pretend like we're a person of prayer when we're really not. Or when we pretend and fake being genuinely concerned for another person when deep down we're really not. We're spiritual posers and pretenders When we pick up the phone, or when we go home for the weekend, or go home for the holidays, or home for the summer, and we have a conversation with our parents, and we portray a spirituality that is not even close to the reality that we live every single day on this campus. We're spiritual posers. When we embellish stories about ourselves, in order to put ourselves in the best possible light, can we talk? Can I be honest with you? I want more than anything to be genuine and honest with you. And if I'm honest, and I read this passage, yes, I get caught up in the problems, and that's why I didn't want to preach it, but as I made my way through the problem of the passage and actually got to the point of the passage, it was like a dagger into my heart. Why? Because this is me. Friends, I'm often a pretender. And you know what? If you're honest... You are too. We all have masks, don't we? Masks that we put on around different groups of people to pretend to be someone that we're not. It reminds me of the Phantom of the Opera, masquerade, paper faces on parade. Hide your face so the world will never find you. Every face a different shade, look around. There's another mask behind you. That's who we are. And more than anything, if you're like me, I want to be a person of integrity. And you want to be a person of integrity. But so far, that's often far from us. And so then the question becomes what do we do? How do we change? How do we begin to take the mask off in our lives? And the answer is the same for us as it was for Ananias and Sapphira. The answer, friends, is repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a theological term that means to turn from. And so repentance starts to take place in our life and we start to turn from our hypocrisy when we let this passage go deep when we let it go all the way down to the core of who we are, and when we get there, we finally admit, and some of you, maybe for the first time, admit that you're not who you claim to be. And friends, when you get there, guess what happens? If you get to that place, you'll finally meet Jesus. Because Jesus died for hypocrites. If this is ever going to be a community that is going to change this campus, it must be a community of genuineness. It must be a community of brokenness and humility and honesty, or it will be no community at all. Friends, the church was able to move like it did in the world because Jesus was in the midst of it And people could be honest and real about who they are. There was great humility and great authenticity and integrity. And until that starts to happen on this campus, this campus will remain unaffected by the gospel. And I want more than anything for that to begin to happen here so that the ripple effects of it will be felt out there. <clears throat> the problem of the passage. The point of the passage. and So the question is, how, do we, how does the point of the passage actually become a reality in our lives? And that's our third point. The powers. We've got to see the powers in this passage. And the first power is, look at verse 11. How do we move from being pretenders to living authentically in community and authentically with ourselves as individuals. Verse 11, the first power is the church. It's very interesting. As I was studying, this is the very first time Luke uses the word church in the book of Acts. Why? Well, because Luke knows as we encounter a passage like this, we need the church So desperately. Look at verse 3 with me. It's interesting, isn't it? It It says that Satan actually filled them. And so we get this sense that there are actually powers out there working against us. The, The world, the flesh, and the devil that are fierce and that are working against us. And so if we are ever to move out of hypocrisy, out of pretending to living honestly then we, it's going to happen through community and through the church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about one another. You need and I need people in my life. You need people in your life who will ask you the hard questions, who will challenge you, who will rebuke you, who will love you, who will forgive you. And I know there are things in your life that you do not want to share. I understand that. But, friends, you must share them. And that doesn't mean that you go and you air your dirty laundry to everyone. That's not what it means. That's not wise. Be wise, of course. Use wisdom. But don't let that be an excuse for living in isolation. Who knows you? Does anyone know what you struggle with? Do you have friends that will confront you? Are you able to be honest with them about what you're really struggling with? You see, the greatest problem to getting to the point of the passage and for it to become a reality in our lives isn't the speculative questions that we often get bogged up in and bogged down in. You know what I think it is? It's our refusal to admit that we actually have a need. It's our refusal to admit that we cannot save ourselves. It's our refusal to admit that we actually need to be rescued from ourselves. And so then the question becomes, we've got to ask it, so why don't we fall down Right now, on the spot in divine judgment, just like Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Well, because the judgment fell on Jesus. Because the judgment fell on the only perfect person with a perfect reputation. And if you've read the Gospels, you'll know that everyone set out to destroy his reputation. Think about the religious leaders. They tried to tear his reputation apart. They twisted his words. They took his words out of context. And even his own family thought he was completely crazy. And then Jesus goes to the cross, and in his moment of most despair, the only man that has never wore a mask in his entire life is hanging on the cross, and insults are being thrown at him and hurled at him, And Jesus doesn't open His mouth to defend Himself. Why does He do that? You know why He does that? So that you can be free. So that you can be free to take your mask off and be honest about who you really are. And I can be free to take my mask off and be honest about who I really am. Jesus, the only one with a perfect reputation, gave up his reputation. So that you and I, people with questionable reputations, could actually receive his reputation as our very own. And that's the point of the story. Think about it. Ananias and Sapphira are trying hard to gain and to earn their reputation when what they really needed to do is admit that they didn't have one and accept Jesus' reputation as their own. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of you know my daughter, Ann Wright, turned four yesterday. We had a big party at cloud nine which was like pump it up one of these jumpy places and she invited several of her friends and we took the gifts home and we were going to open them up kind of as a family and so we put all the gifts on the floor and they're all laid out and Susie and I and our other girls are watching her and so Anne Wright starts to open up the gifts and she gets the first gift and she opens it And then she looks at Susie and me and says, Are these for me? Are these mine? Can I have this? We're like, laugh. And of course, you know, this this is what it means. It's your birthday. It's your day. We're celebrating you. She opened up a couple of more gifts. Exact same thing. Are these mine? Are these for me? And as I was watching this take place, I couldn't help but think, that is exactly the same way I am with grace. God comes and He gives me His good gifts. And He says, all that I have is yours. And I say, for me? Really? Is it true? Is this real? Friends, Jesus gave up his reputation so that you could actually have one. It's true. It's true. And I'm calling you and I'm calling my own heart to believe that tonight because it's only as we believe that. That is the power. When we believe that, a power will burst forth in our life and we'll stop pretending and we'll finally start to live honestly and live lives of integrity with one another and with the community around us. Let's pray. Father, make us into an authentic community. Make us into authentic people Help us to believe and to know deep down in our hearts that we don't have to pretend. And the reason why we don't have to pretend is because of Jesus and his righteousness that he won for us. Father, help us to believe that with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sorry.